Hey listener, Katie is out this weekend, so I'm doing the intro. Before we begin, I should make clear this episode is going to be a controversial one. We talk about racial injustice and violence, sexual violence and consent, and how to view societies in history that considered these actions illegal when we see them as undeniably evil, as they are. As a result, this episode may be triggering for people who have experienced racial or sexual violence. Please use discretion before listening. This episode is based off the work Mastery, Tyranny, and Desire, Thomas Thistlewood and His Slaves in the Anglo-Jamaican World by Trevor Bernard. I've struggled, since starting this podcast, on whether to include a particular type of crime in our working definition of the show, by which I mean, if you've read our tagline, investigating crime and criminology before the past hundred years, before 1918, now 1919. Typically, that's an easy fit, but there are sometimes crimes that exist today that never were questioned hundreds or thousands of years ago. Like, for example... If I did an episode on the drinking age, I would be pretty hard-pressed to find information on cultures that actually had a drinking age written in stone. It's mostly a modern societal concept. But then, there are some crimes so abhorrent to contemporary society that it is not hard to look back and wonder if hindsight is always 2020. Crimes that were not even considered immoral back then that are absolutely immoral today, would land you on death row. Crimes that have existed since the dawn of time, but only in the past 200 years were even considered crime in the first place. In this case, I'm talking about crimes against humanity. Now that phrase, crimes against humanity, means violent crime against a particular group of people in society. It's a very modern phrase. Its first use was during the early 19th century and detailed condemnation of the slave trade in treaties. Yet it was not until the Nuremberg Trials of 1945 against members of the Nazi party that it was ever prosecuted. So theoretically, if something isn't legally a crime until it's properly defined in a society, is it a crime? That's certainly up to the philosophers and theologians and what have you, but what I am extremely interested in is the fact that certain societies didn't even question widespread violence towards particular groups of people. It was literally the norm for entire populations in history to rape, torture, and murder other populations for a variety of reasons. Spin the historical wheel, and you can find pretty much every people group in history has done this at one point or another to somebody else. And therein lies the rub. If I really wanted to open up the definition of crime to encompass crimes against humanity that existed before that phrase even existed, I could be here all day, detailing the eradication of the Carthaginians, the Tamerlane, the Algerians, the Native Americans, the Zulu. And at a certain point, your ears, listener, would start tuning it all out. You probably have already. What's the phrase Stalin gives? One death is a tragedy, a million lives is a statistic. Is it so hard to sometimes wrap our minds around such atrocities without anchoring them somewhere? 
And atrocities, I think we would all agree they were, yet those actions were not considered criminal when they were taken up by other people groups. So why am I bringing this up? Because I think there's something worthwhile investigating not only what cultures considered criminal, but what they did not consider criminal. I think that fact shines light on history more than any crime could. And if that seems a little bit outside of the breadth of this show, of the, our little working definition, then I guess you can skip this episode, but I think you should first consider this. A man shows up at a police station today. He admits to having forced sexual intercourse with over 100 women and has the detailed logs of literally every encounter to prove it. He also admits to having tortured thousands of individuals in his lifetime, also all detailed and recorded in his logs. He admits to whipping them, beating them, even forcibly defecating in their mouths and sewing them shut. He admits to murdering dozens of them, beheading them, placing their heads on spikes as a warning. Would you not say this person is going to be tried as a criminal in modern times, convicted, and put on death row? Is that not undeniable? So what if it is that it's not a crime, but actually a norm? What does that say about a society and what they considered legal? And in this case, that society is not some distant cousin. It describes 18th century Jamaica. And those actions are those of a man named Thomas Thistlewood, a white plantation owner, in his treatment of his African slaves. And what makes this account so horrifying is twofold. That none of those actions above were a crime, and that his actions were part of normal society. I'm Trevor Rhodes, and this is High Crimes in History. Thomas Thistlewood was born as the son of a tenant farmer in 1721 in Lincolnshire, England. He would inherit no land, but having been well-educated for his status. Although he lived his first three decades in England, he understood that he would never find wealth or status there. He traveled to India for two years before arriving in Kingston, Jamaica, on April 24, 1750, in search for a better life. Jamaica was a Caribbean island that was a moneymaker for the British Empire, more so than any of the 13 colonies at the time. It was the largest producer of sugarcane and rum in the West Indies, which made obscene amounts of money. To just give you an idea, over 13% of total imports into Britain stemmed from the island, and over half of all Caribbean imports. This wealth was exclusive to the white immigrants who had settled in Jamaica, they were the wealthiest individuals in the entirety of the British Empire. They were, on average, 36 times wealthier than a 13 colonies white, 57 times wealthier than any white in England. Now, this wealth was made off the backs of African slave labor. 95% of the country was black. In a six-month time span in Thistlewood's first year, he only saw three white people. The treatment of slaves here is actually acutely different also than that of a 13 colonies slave. This is due in large part to the market. American slaves were bred. Jamaican slaves were bought. 
the lack of nutrition, the tropical environment, the brutality meant that very few slaves lived long enough to reproduce, and even fewer had the ability to reproduce because of the poor diet affecting the ability to carry a child. This meant that most slaves were African through and through, shipped directly from Africa. They had no collective self-expression when they came to the island. They had different religions, different cultures, and backgrounds. Together, they would build a culture that was uniquely Jamaican, a blend of these backgrounds. But what makes this story so interesting is that for 39 years, Thistlewood kept a daily diary, totaling 36 volumes and over 10,000 pages. What makes them remarkable is that the wealth of data they store about the plantation owners of the West Indies without any of the self-reflection of a diary. I mean, every excerpt is terse. It's like written by an accountant, and yet it's full to the brim with these details that even an average reader could miss, and they're details that reveal the life of a man that many modern readers and listener would easily consider evil. However, his diaries are not meant to justify his actions or reflect on them in any meaningful way. No, their obsession with facts means that they're really only there to record and maintain order. Now before we get started, because some of what I'm going to say is going to sound absolutely insane, could there be some sort of psychological disorder here? Certainly. Thistlewood's account comes across as like straight up pathological. However, I think it's important to stress the extent upon which his actions were normal. There's very little to suggest, especially compared to the other diaries that we have from white Jamaicans, that his actions were different than those of his neighbors. So when we describe those actions, keep in mind that this is the norm for white Jamaicans. Now, Thistlewood was offered a job as an overseer on the sugarcane plantation of William Doyle and as a pinkeeper for Florentius Vassal. White labor was of short supply on Jamaica. There's too many of them that would die from disease, so Thistlewood could set his own price. He moved between plantations wherever the going was highest. In 10 years, he was making 200 pounds a year and was hiring his own slaves. Now, because white workers were so necessary, this meant that employers had no leverage over their employees. A worker could be drunk, violent, and prone to sexual excesses, yet most plantation owners turned a blind eye because even raising a concern would lead to the loss of a worker in an environment where they were hard up to find whites in the first place. For example, one May night in 1763, a white worker, Patrick May, picked a fight with a slave of Thistlewood's, Nanny, and shot her in both the ankle and the head. Thistlewood's reply was to tell him to be about his business. That was literally the extent of the punishment Patrick got. Another in Thistlewood's employee, Harry McCormack, was a drunkard who frequently had affairs with the wives of slaves. He once fell out of his own cart and was ran over by it. He was so drunk. He never left Thistlewood's employ. He was killed only after some of the husbands of the wives he was having an affair with felled a tree on him. Now, by 1767, Thistlewood had had enough of working as an overseer, and he set up his own plantation. He hired out his slaves to work on neighboring estates as well as his own, and he would continue to do so until his death in 1786 and make a pretty good income. Quickly upon arrival in Jamaica, Thistlewood realized just how much he could get away with. 
Less than a month after his arrival in Jamaica, he had committed his first atrocities. Quote, In the two months he lived at Doral's, however, he began to understand the extent to which white dominance rested on naked force. Twelve days after Thistlewood's arrival in Westmoreland Parish, Doral meted out justice to runaway Negroes. He whipped them severely and then rubbed pepper, salt, and lime juice into their wounds. Three days later, the body of a dead runaway slave was brought to Doral. He cut off the slave's head and stuck it on a pole and then burned the body. End quote. He also participated in his first sexual couplings with black women, whether consensual or not. In his first year alone, he slept with 13 women on 59 occasions. During his time as an overseer and later a plantation owner, he committed multiple reprehensible atrocities against African slaves. For example, if a slave ran away or was guilty of some other transaction, then they almost certainly would be hung in chains, burned to death over a slow fire, and their head displayed on a pole. Slaves were branded on their cheeks for minor infractions and sent to the Bilbos, these chains that kept them locked in place, a lot like the stockade in Britain. Many were forced after release to wear a collar and chain for months at a time. Farther infractions could carry marks in which Thistlewood would either brand or cut the skin. Each mark would signify an infraction. Slaves could rack up many scars over their lifetime for innocuous incidences like not bringing in enough crop or fish in a day. Some, such as the slave Malia, were branded on their foreheads for running away. Flogging was extremely commonplace. It was common to whip a slave more than once a week. A slave expected such punishment at least once a year. These floggings could stretch up to 300 lashes, and they normally averaged around 50 to 100. He also committed other atrocities. He condemned a slave of William Beckford to 100 lashes and to have a, both ears cut off for stealing cattle. Another slave had both of his ears severed, his nostrils slit, and slashes made across the cheeks. Some of the punishments were inventive but even more horrifying. One involved rubbing molasses over the naked body of slaves and leaving them to the mosquitoes for days at a time. Once, he forced one slave, Douglas Cuba, to sit on a quart bottle inserted into one of her orifices. Whether it was the vagina or the anus is not specified, but his favorite punishment for runaways was what he called Derby's Dose. The captive would be flogged, and salt pickle, lime juice, and bird pepper would be rubbed into the open wounds. Another slave would urinate in the eyes or the mouth of the runaway slave, and then another slave would be forced to defecate into the mouth, which would then be gagged or sewn shut for several hours. These punishments were recorded at least once every couple days by Thistlewood, meaning thousands of such punishments were meted out in his lifetime. How did he make the mental switch so quickly from being abhorrent of this behavior to being able to torture and mutilate slaves? First, I think it's important to understand that Thistlewood was, again, part of the norm. This is considered normal in Jamaican society, and we're about to discuss why. First, he was not how, I guess, modern racists are portrayed to be, seeing non-whites as genetically inferior to Caucasians. No, his racism was rooted in societal pressures and culture. Trevor Bernard writes, quote, Although Thistlewood saw slaves as human beings, 
he did not see them as biologically inferior in the manner of a scientific racist, such as Long. He accepted common Jamaican understandings that whites could act towards blacks in any way they wanted with impunity. Whites had total license to behave towards slaves as they saw fit, with white juries excusing all white crimes towards blacks short of psychopathic serial murder. That whites were free to act as they pleased towards blacks does not, however, explain why they were so brutal toward their slaves. White Jamaicans, as Charles Leslie noted, were notorious for their ill-treatment of slaves. One of the causes of that ill-treatment arose from the almost complete absence of constraint over how that power was exercised. Psychological studies, notably the famous Milgram experiments on the makeup of authoritarian personalities, have confirmed the increased extent to which individuals are willing to abuse normal ethical standards when they are placed within institutional structures that allow normal ethical standards to be violated. Studies of the Holocaust have revealed that extraordinary circumstances can encourage ordinary people to commit acts of unrestrained violence and evil. He writes farther, quote, Not only did native-born whites take immense pride in the constant obsequiousness of their slaves, migrants also became quickly attuned to West Indian ways. Like wax softened by heat, J.B. Morgan argued, men from other countries melt into Jamaican manners and customs. Men from their first entrance are taught to practice severities to the slaves, so that in time their hearts become callous to all tender feelings which soften and dignify our nature. The most insignificant Connock, savage bumpkin, or silly highland gawky will soon learn to flog without mercy to shew his authority. End quote. It's also important to note that Thistlewood maintained his dominance through violence and torture, because if slaves were ever aroused to the reality that insurrection in numbers would be the end of slavery in the Caribbean, then Thistlewood would find himself dead within the first day of revolution. And it's also kind of crazy, because this is very unlike colonial America. The relationship between slaves and whites was constantly this undeclared war in which casualties were caused on both sides, but especially against blacks. Historian Brian Edwards noted, quote, The leading principle upon which the government of Jamaica is supported is fear. End quote. Slavery revolts were very common, and many a white found themselves dead at the hands of slaves. Thistlewood personally knew this. He lost his nephew, John, in 1765 to a slave revolt. John had gone fishing and never returned. His body was found in the river. Thistlewood wrote in his diary, quote, Last night, between 8 and 9 o'clock, heard a shell blow on the river, and afterwards in the night, two guns fired with a loud huzzah after each on the river against our Negro houses, for joy that my kinsman is dead, I imagine. Strange impudence. End quote. Four major revolts occurred during Thistlewood's life in Jamaica, and that is not including the individual moments of slaves murdering their masters and mistresses, of which many occurred. Thistlewood himself was attacked several times by slaves, including ones with knives and guns. For example, early in his career, he encountered a runaway named Sam, a premeditated meeting by the slaves as he would later realize. Sam swung a machete at him, stating, I will kill you, and I will kill you now. As slaves gathered around, he fought Sam, gripping the blade in his bare hands while wrestling for it. He called for aid and found none. The slaves watched, waiting for the final blow, 
Finally, he was able to overpower Sam and disarm him. From this and many other events, Thistlewood understood that, because of his exploitation of slavery, physical danger was all around him. Thus, violence was the primary method upon which to strike down the slave population and prevent their uprising as well as protect his own life. But that doesn't excuse his actions, and I should make that clear time and time again. I am fascinated, though, at the fact that it's really hard for us to imagine that this is possible on a societal level. I've only described mostly Thistlewood and his punishments, but I should make clear that all the other white Jamaican diaries we have suggest this was the norm in Jamaica. It was an expectation, a brutality that was believed necessary to keep control of the population. Without it, the belief held, slaves would rise up against white society. For example, one English doctor commented, quote, The corporal punishment of slaves is so common that instead of exciting the repugnant sensations felt by Europeans on first witnessing it, scarcely does it produce in the breasts of those accustomed to the West Indies even the slightest glow of compassion. End quote. Heck, Thistlewood was well-educated. He had over a thousand books in his library in the 1770s. He considered himself a scholar of the Enlightenment, the period where modern ideas of justice and natural rights were practically invented. He was reading David Hume, Adam Smith, Benjamin Franklin, Edward Gibbon. But I think that this is where it's important, where we can come back to what this show is about, highlighting crime and criminology. And thus far, everything that we've described has not been criminal. Their explanations that they have given for their actions have mostly been at least predicated on the idea of self-preservation. Is it right? Absolutely not. Do you think this would hold up in 1945 if instead of white Jamaicans, they were Nazis, and instead of African slaves, they were Jews? I mean, they use the exact same arguments of being fearful of a Jewish uprising that could kill them. I don't think that fear for self-preservation can excuse their actions. Now, for Thomas Thistlewood, I think it's interesting that he never once questioned in his accounts his own treatment of slaves. In fact, only once did he even question whether slaves actually enjoyed their condition. When he found out that his mistress Fibba was sick, he wrote in his diary, quote, Poor girl, I pity her. She is in miserable slavery. End quote. Now, violence was not the only tool that Thistlewood used. He recorded every sexual encounter in his diaries, all told 3,852 times with 138 women over 37 years. Now, the majority of these couplings were with Fibba, his slave mistress with whom he had a child. However, he had many sexual encounters with slave women he either owned or controlled. Almost all female slaves under his control had sex with him multiple times, only the very young and very old escaped his sexual opportunism. Many slaves of neighboring estates or of friends also had sex with him. Very few of his sexual encounters were white women. Of those, all were prostitutes. And this is what comes across as, I've used the word pathological, and it works here too, in his descriptions of his sexual predations. He has no problem mentioning the name, the race, place, time, the position of sexual coitus, yet he never once mentions the emotional experience. 
He makes clear, however, in his patterns that sex was not so much prostitution or release as it was opportunism and exploitation. We don't even know how many of these sexual conquests were forced and how many were not. More on that in a moment, although I think it's very important to note that his conquests, including the volume of them, were typical of whites in Jamaica, and many of the journals of other whites describe the forcible rape of slaves. Thistlewood does, too. For example, he writes in his diary about the gang rape of a house servant named Eve by six white men at a party he was privy to. Another journal entry he made was of a Barbados woman who was made pregnant in a gang rape by three white men. Indeed, he only notes gang rapes when they have stories attached to them. Rape was extremely prevalent. Thus, it is hardly a stretch to suggest Thistlewood engaged in the same. In our society, we are having discussions about what consent is and is not and whether it constitutes rape. Not consenting was not an option in Thistlewood's era. Slaves were whipped and beat for refusing to have sex with him. For example, two slaves, Egypt Susanna and Mazarine, were whipped for refusing sex with one of the plantation owners. In another example, in 1753, two whites, Paul Stevens and Thomas Adams, went to gang-rape Sarah, a slave under Thistlewood's charge. She refused, and they burnt her to death, along with her hut. Thistlewood was alarmed, but only at the fact that his property, in this case his slave, had been destroyed. Thus, all sexual encounters that he made with his slaves, indeed any white made with a slave, were under duress. Under such circumstances, I'd argue that pretty much any of Thistlewood's encounters were rape. As Bernard puts it, quote, Thistlewood was probably a rapist indeed. He was certainly a rapist in thought. End quote. The psychological effects this took on Thistlewood's slaves is brutal. I mean, for a second, place yourself in the shoes of a slave, dehumanized, beaten at least once a year to the inch of your life forced into sexual encounters, violence from both your fellow slaves and your masters always looming over your head like some sort of sword of Damocles, resistance futile, historians seem to be split between scholars who focus on the ability of slaves to create their own blended society out of these circumstances, and scholars who pinpoint the destructive force of the institution of slavery. In the case of Jamaica, it's hard not to take the latter. Bernard writes, quote, All of Thistlewood's slaves were, to some extent, psychologically damaged by their experience as slaves. Their community, to the extent that it existed, was one marked by personal devastation and social trauma. Thistlewood's slaves were trapped in a dehumanizing life of exhausting labor, debilitating disease, and demeaning social relationships. They were constantly tired, frequently frightened, and subject to continual flux in their living and work arrangements. Thistlewood deliberately fostered these conditions. His carefully controlled but deliberate savagery toward his slaves destabilized slave communities and allowed him to act as a vengeful facilitator who intervened powerfully, violently, and usually successfully in slaves' domestic and personal lives bolstering his authority in a world where custom was attenuated, the law was of no avail, and a master's power was close to absolute. End quote. This abuse manifests itself in multiple ways on his 
slave population. Thistlewood accounts for multiple suicides or attempted suicide by his slaves in his diaries. For example, in 1756, one slave named Mole drowned herself over fear that she had harmed another slave and would be punished. Another slave shot himself after the death of his master, believing he would follow him into the next life. One slave, Nero, threatened to cut his own throat instead of work. He was whipped, tied, and left to the mosquitoes. Another slave, Phoebe, was flogged for wishing she was dead already. In addition, slaves suffered from malnutrition and sickness. Up to 40% were ill or unhealthy at any given time. Venereal disease was extremely common because of the sexual proclivity of their white masters and the polygamous practices that African slaves participated in. Because of this, most slave women were infertile from a lack of nutrition or disease. Children who were born suffered up to a 90% mortality rate before the age of 7. The highest working age was 44. Only one recorded slave made it to that age before death. Now, I should make clear, Jamaican slaves were not docile, domestic-created creatures, as some historians have painted them to be, most notably Stanley Elkins. They were fierce. They resisted with violence, by exploiting their own sexual relationships with their masters to get ahead, by running away through mass revolts. And slaves were given more freedom over their actions than colonial American slaves were. They could own weapons, make money, travel, engage in marriages, often multiple ones. However, those moments of resistance, while part of a pattern, were extremely weak in comparison to the amount of abuse heaped upon them. It would not be until 30 years after Thistlewood's death that the first African slave uprising, the Haitian Revolution, would succeed. So, back to those questions I posed at the beginning. Can crimes against humanity be held against those individuals in history that committed the crime before that definition entered the legal dictionary? Or more to the point, can we condemn entire groups of people for committing atrocities before that definition existed? Legally, I think it would be very hard to make a case against Thomas Thistlewood and the white men of Jamaica. British law held that what they did was entirely legal. It was not a crime. Most contemporaries would have agreed that it was not even immoral, at least not in far-off Jamaica amongst savages. Yet at the same time, something's gnawing at you, listener. You want to say that's wrong, that we shouldn't just turn a blind eye. That Thistlewood and the white slave owners of Jamaica shouldn't just get a historical pass because they lived in the history before something was a crime. That if they were in front of us today, we would be able to bring down the legal law. They would be prosecuted and sentenced and executed much in the same way Nazis were during the Nuremberg trials for their crimes against humanity. And I think that's a really good response to have, because it means that you, listener, have learned from history. That age-old adage, those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it. And no matter which way you land on the question of whether you can consider something a crime against humanity, morally, societally, legally, the truth is that during that time it was legally not a crime. So in other words, Thomas Thistlewood never got his comeuppance. The prevalent European belief that whites were superior in all ways to blacks still existed. Slavery was an institution for economic gain, and corporal punishment was an expectation, not an exception. Thomas Thistlewood died 
and November 30th, 1786, at the age of 65, from illness. A quiet and peaceful death for a man who had brought much destruction to human life. The man never thought himself a criminal, never had an inkling that he had done wrong, but we do. As Trevor Bernard ends his book, quote, as the evidence shows, we are right to remember him for his cruelties and brutalities. High Crimes in History is produced, written, and edited by Trevor and Katie Rhodes. Music by Nick Wright. If you enjoy the show, please rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have recommendations for show topics or comments about the show, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, or find us at our website at highcrimesinhistory.com.